Amen. So we, since it's work series, we're just like working by bringing bigger and bigger tables out each weekend. So the challenge will be now for next week, whoever's preaching, to find a bigger table to carry out. It'll just make it a little bit more exciting. Uh, so we're, we're going through this work series, and I don't know if you've been with us, there's been a hint every single weekend leading up to this weekend because everybody keeps dripping the same idea that, that there's this, this challenge that we face between what is sacred and what is secular. And how do we handle that divide? And so every series so far, every, every weekend, whoever's been preaching is, has hinted at it and talked about it a little bit. And here's the other thing is for the next couple weeks as we finish out the series, I, I have a feeling this will keep coming up. Because there's this, this huge divide as we try to wrestle with and how do we divide what is sacred and what is secular? How do we make that distinction? And, and it's, this is an important question. And the reason it's important is that how you handle this question just has this huge ripple effect through every other aspect of your life. Right? Which things are sacred, which things are secular? How do we make the distinction? Here's, here's another little thing. You guys, we are really, really good at making distinctions. Right? We're really good at dividing things out into categories. But here's the other truth. We're really, really bad at doing that well. And what I mean by that is we're really good at dividing things into categories, but normally we do it wrong. And we're really good at, at making a distinction between things that, that shouldn't be there, or we divide things incorrectly, but, but we do it all the time. And we do the same thing, this idea of things that are sacred and which things are secular. I'm sure that all of you probably could, like, if we were to do a pop quiz, you could quickly answer those. And so to test that theory... We're going to do a pop quiz right now, all right? Pop quiz on what's sacred, what's secular, all right? Now, for those of you at home, I expect that you participate, and I won't know how to, I'll check that, but participate. For those of you in the room, like, participation's required, so and I, we're going to ask questions. So here's how the quiz is going to work. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, and you're going to tell me whether that place that you see pictured is sacred or secular. Okay? Now a little, I, I don't know if this is fair or not, but with all pop quizzes, any devious teacher is trying to trip you up. So I guess I'm a devious teacher. I'm letting you know that ahead of time. All right? So here's, here's the quiz. First, first location. Look at this picture. Tell me, is this sacred or secular place? What do you guys think? All right, we got somebody on sacred. It's correct. All right, this, this place, this is Riverview Bible Camp on the Ponderé River. Beautiful place. It's, it's where I went as a kid. Going, and in fact, just probably, they've changed some buildings since I was there. They do that. But kind of towards the left in those trees, that tree, that wooded area, there's a little chapel. And it was at that chapel that I made the decision to like rededicate my life to Jesus. I had trusted Jesus growing up, but my parents brought me to church, and it was at that point in high school where I was like, you know what, this faith, I'm kind of just, it's our family's thing. This is, this is me. I want to trust Jesus. And so when I think about this place, this, this camp, is a sacred place. All right, so you guys got the feel of it? You're feeling kind of okay. So here we go. Number two. People are laughing. All right. Sacred place. 
This is a sacred place. This is, this is Chalmers Field at UD. When I think of it, though, it's not quite as nice as it is currently. But when I came to Dubuque, I went to UD and I played football. And it was on that field, both in practice and in games, where my faith got put to the test. In large part because I had just moved halfway across the country from everyone I knew. And in a new place as a college student, how am I, how am I going to live out my faith? Is my faith real? Does it, does it have impact on every aspect of my life? Well, it, it got tested on this field. And so again, for me, I think of that place as being a sacred place. All right? How about this next one? All right, sacred. You guys are catching on to some little hints, right? Sacred place. This is, some of you are in this picture. All right? This, is, this was a, when, back when we were at the, the university camps, we had a big picnic. And we had a worship night, and there's a pie con- baking contest, and the winners, I think they bribed kids to vote for them so they could win. It's still. <laughs> All right, but it was a great, this is the church gathering, having a great time together, and getting a chance to worship on a field. It's a sacred place because the church was gathering. All right, so here, we're, last one. This one's a little bit tricky. All right, here we go. Aw, somebody's peeling around. Is this a sacred or a secular place? Yeah. It's my parents' house. This is the house I grew up in. You see that little window to the, to the side of the front door? That, that's the kitchen window, and just... To the right of that, that window, there's behind those bushes another one. That was my bedroom window. Me and my brother shared that bedroom. This is the house I grew up in. You know, when mom was like, don't break the window, my mom would be like, don't break the stained glass. But we grew up in this building that, that at one point had been a church. It's too small for a church, really big for a house. And it was awesome. It was the house I grew up in. But I, I, I remember this in high school. Um, the year we won the state championship, I was like the one house that, of all the football players whose house didn't get teepeed. <laughs> right? Because I think some of the cheerleaders were worried about the difference between sacred and secular. <laughs> right? And, and my, my friend, I remember this, one of my teammates picked me up one time for a practice, and as we're driving away, he looked at me and he said, hey, do you feel bad when you lie to your parents? Because you live in a church. <laughs> hey, he saw this distinction. Like there's when, you know, like, yeah, a lot of your parents, but, but you live in a church, right? There's this distinction. And, and so we all wrestle with this thing, right? Sacred versus secular. Because those things, right, when we make those distinctions, it has all sorts of implications for the way we act. What is sacred? What is secular? How do you act and behave in those, uh, those areas, right? We're, we're all in church, right? A lot of you said sacred place because it looks like a church. So now we're here in a church. So because we see this as a sacred place, does it change our behavior? On the way here, for those of you in the room, like as you drove here, were you thinking differently than you do when you drive other places? Did you prepare differently, right? Maybe you dressed up a little bit differently. Right? Maybe there's expectations on behavior because it's a sacred place. 
So we're expecting different behavior from ourselves and our family and our kids. Again, maybe you, maybe you brushed your teeth this morning and you normally don't in the mornings. I don't know what you did, but right? We act differently because of the space we're in and, and the way we see it as being sacred or secular. But I think, again, we divide these things up differently. And I think we do it wrong. Because if you remember at the very first, if you were here the very first week when we kicked off this series, Pastor Matt talked about Genesis 1. And how in the beginning God created everything and it was good. And Adam and Eve were given work to do and it was good. It was all before sin entered the world. So work and all of creation is good. And then sin came in and ruined everything. And so I think the reality is that spaces aren't sacred or secular. I think spaces are just spaces. And some places, like the, the trick of this pop quiz, is that for some places they can have a special meaning for us. They can have a, uh, maybe they're an inspirational point in our lives or they have a, a special meaning for us. And so we, we kind of designate them as, as special because there are these points in our lives where, where God did something or parts in our lives that, that mean something to us and so we mark them as sacred. But, but they're not sacred any more than any other place. And my list of sacred places is probably going to be different than yours because spaces are neutral. So why do we make this distinction? Why do we divide between sacred and secular, and why do we act differently and do things differently in those spaces? Here's the thing. I think that we do it because we've got an incorrect view of God's redemptive plan for history. Like I think we have this misunderstanding of God's plan for redemption, and because of that, we treat things differently. Now, some of you are probably saying, like, I don't even know what you mean by that, so how do I have a wrong view? And here, here's what I mean is we often view the Bible and God's Word as, as telling us what's sacred and what's not, right? Sacred being this idea of holiness, of set apart, without sin. God created everything and it was good, it was perfect, it was out, without sin. God is without sin, He's perfect, He's holy, and so places that God are, places that are without sin are sacred, and so before sin, everything was that way. And so we have this view of God's redemptive plan is that, that there's sin in the world, and so God rescued us. He sent Jesus who died on the cross for us. When we put our trust in Jesus, we're saved. And now that we're saved, from now until we die, we try to live good. And we read the Bible, and we get these instructions on right and wrong, and we try to do our best to do more right than wrong so that at some point God's going to be like, all right, you're done, and boop, we're out and we get to go like this free ride to heaven, right? He just plucks us and puts us in heaven, this perfect place without sin, right? And so we have this view of redemption, right, that I'm going to do my best, trust Jesus, and at some point I get rescued out of this sinful world and I get brought to perfect holy heaven. But that's not what we learn in the Bible, Right? Because we have this incorrect view of God's redemptive plan in that He's just going to rescue us out of here sometime, but God's plan is to redeem His creation. God's plan is to redeem 
all that he created. And so we see again, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were there without sin. God was with them in perfect relationship. It was what his design and plan was for all of creation, to live in perfect unity with him. But then sin entered the world, and so Adam and Eve were sent out, and that relationship is broken. As we fast forward through the Bible, we come to, to Abraham, who God picks out of the world and, says, and makes a promise with him. And God makes a covenant with Abraham that through his family, he's going to make everything right. And then we see Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob. And as we read the stories of those families, there's all these moments where they, they have these interactions with God. And what do they do? They, they, they mark those places. They build an altar to remember. And, and they, they call those spaces sacred, right? Which, again, then we get back to this, like, well, see, they're sacred spaces, Right? Jacob, he, he had slept and he had the dream of, of the angels descending to and from heaven. And he woke up and he said, this place is holy, it's sacred. And he built an altar there. And, and it's this whole plan of how is God coming to redeem his world. But then we, again, skip forward a little bit more. We get to, to Moses. And as God rescues the people from Egypt, he, he gives them the law. And the law and all the sacrifices, the whole purpose of it was to show them their sin and provide a temporary covering for their sin. And as part of the law, they build the tabernacle, which is in the center of the camp. And, and through sacrifices, they have this temporary atonement, this way to make them right with God so that, that that place can be sanctified and made holy so that God could dwell with his people. And the people could be made holy. So again, we see God coming to his creation. And so we have this, this sacred, holy place in the middle of the camp. And as you read through the law, you see all these ways that people could be made unclean. And then the process by which they could be made clean again so that they could re-enter the camp and be with God. And really, as we read through that, it just sets up the need for this Messiah. This rescuer who is going to come to, to fulfill all these temporary fixes. These sacrifices that just partially atoned for sin, that partially covered, and that Jesus came to become that perfect sacrificial lamb who would rescue his people from sin and make us right with God. And so as Jesus comes, as we read in John chapter 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? Jesus came to dwell among us, to set up his camp with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. <coughs> So as we look at God's story, it culminates with Jesus. That he comes not to rescue us out of the world, but to transform us and to redeem us to himself, to make us new, to make us perfect and holy. And so all of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we're in that process. Right? That, that whole process of sanctification where the rest of our life God is continuing to chip away the things in us that don't measure up. And, and as we learn to follow him and imitate him, that's what we're called to be. God's redemptive plan is, 
is to rescue us, but not to rescue us out of the world, but to rescue the world through Jesus. And so as we start to understand this plan of redemption that God has, we come to this reality that there aren't sacred and secular places. There are holy people that God is redeeming. There aren't sacred and secular places. There are sacred people who God has called and rescued and set apart. And so when we've put our trust in Jesus, when we've understood that, that because of our sin, we are separated from Jesus, and it took Jesus coming and dying on the cross to make a way for us to be made right with God. And so we've trusted in what he did for us. God comes and lives in us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. That's the truth that I want you guys to understand. When we're trying to make this distinction between sacred and secular, it's this recognition that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's God's plan for redemption. Not to save us out of the world and to pull us out to rescue us from this evil, wicked place. But he comes and sets up his home in us. And as we understand that, it, it changes our perspective. Because here's the reality. Wherever you go, whatever you do, Christ is with you. As a follower of Jesus, who's put our hope and trust in Jesus, he sets up his dwelling in us, and we become his temple. And so wherever we go, whether you are going to work, whether you are going out to eat, whether you're going bowling, whether you're going on vacation, whether you're cleaning the kitchen for the millionth time, Christ is with you. God is with us. You guys, I want you to, to hear me on this. Because our, we are the temple, spaces are neutral. Right? Every space that we enter, it's, it's not a sacred, it's not a secular place. But the moment we enter it, it becomes sacred because we are there. The moment we enter a room, that space can become sacred because the Holy Spirit is with us. So as we wrestle with that, as we start to understand that, I think this brings up a, a couple of, of burning questions, right? This big idea, and I want you, maybe the, the most important thing you hear today is that, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that wherever you go, whatever you do, Jesus is with you because he, you are his, because he has rescued you and redeemed you. And to come to grips with that. But as we understand that, I think it, it brings up some questions. Actually, these questions are the same, even if you have the wrong view of God's redemptive plan. 
We still kind of have these same questions, but, but these questions now can get brought into to a, a correct understanding. We can get a correct answer to them when we understand this truth. And so the first question is this. Are there places Christians shouldn't go? Are there places that Christians should not go? If you were a follower of Jesus, are there places in this world that are off limits to you? I think the answer is yes. Now, the, the obvious next question is like, well, what are they? So I can write them down and make sure I don't go there. Well, here's why I'm not, I'm not going to give you a list, and here's why. Because I'm going to give, if I were to give you a list and you were to write them down and start to like live by that list, it would be the wrong list. Because again, it, it, that, that approach stems from this idea that, that God's word is a rule book of things that we need to do and don't do and the clear directions for us. The reality is that God's word is a, God's story of how he loves us and he's rescued us. And how he's redeemed us from a life of sin. And so as we try to understand it, it's not a matter of here's the, here's the ten places that you shouldn't go as a follower of Jesus. It's more about as we, how do we understand this truth that we are the, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, how do we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit for guidance? And how do we learn to, to listen and follow to the leading of the Holy Spirit who lives in us? So why don't you look at this passage, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And, and for some of you, we're, we're not going to have a ton of time to go through these. We're going to go through these questions real quick. This might be a good qu- passage to go back and read and think through as we wrestle with this. Are there, are there places that I shouldn't go? But in Paul's letter to the church, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you mo- must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Then he goes on in verse 20, says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. And put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In his letter to Timothy, Paul said, flee your sinful desires and pursue a life of righteousness. Right? And so there's this distinction as we are made alive in Christ, that we are changed and called to a whole new thing. We're a new creation. We're told to put off our old way of life. And so really the question isn't, Here are the ten places you shouldn't go, but as a follower of Jesus, are there places in your life that you should no longer go as you're changing and being conformed to the image of Christ? Really, it boils down to this. What are the things that God has rescued you from? And as you understand what God has rescued you from, does that change who you become? And are there, are there things that God has rescued you from that, that you're like, I don't want that to be a part of me anymore? And so the, the challenge, again, isn't to say, are there places a Christian shouldn't go? Yes, here's the ten places I don't, don't want to see any of you followers of Jesus in these places ever. 
No, it becomes as we learn to discern what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. And as we walk in a new life that he has called us to, are there places that we no longer go? In a similar way, we come to the second question. This one sounds a little bit harsher. But this question, are there people Christians shouldn't be around? Are there people that Christians shouldn't be around? Here's your answer. Probably. And I know a lot of you are like, well, I, I need something a little bit more clear than that. And, and so before we get a little bit further, we have to come back to this, this truth that drives at the heart of it. Is this 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Right? This, we, this grounding truth that the hope we have in the gospel is that Jesus died for us. And that Jesus came and did what I couldn't do to rescue me from my sin. But in that same breath, we recognize that Jesus didn't just come and die to rescue me. Jesus died for everyone to redeem all of creation. Jesus' death on the cross was perfect and complete. And he died willingly for every person. So the hope of the gospel that we cling to is for everyone. So in that breath, is there anybody that a Christian shouldn't be around? No, because Jesus loves every single person. Right? There's nobody. As a church, we, everybody is welcome in these doors. We want to see everyone come in because the hope of the gospel is for every person. We don't want to create any barrier that keeps anybody from the gospel. But at the same time, so then how do we say probably are there Christians, people that Christians shouldn't be around? Because right? if everybody deserves to hear the hope of the gospel, then when we say that Christians should be around everybody, well, it, it, again, it comes down to this understanding, how do we learn to listen to the guiding of the Holy Spirit? Because we truly believe that Jesus came to reconcile people to himself and to one another. But as followers of Jesus, we've been rescued from death to life. As he's redeeming us, that, that maybe there's some people that like places are a part of our past that, that we need space from, that maybe we shouldn't be around them. All of you middle schoolers and high schoolers, this is your chance to look at your parents right now, okay? Because probably, maybe this week, maybe today, at least in this last week, but probably in the last month, at some point they have looked at you and said, you need to be careful who you're hanging around because those people are a bad influence on you, right? Well, guess what? It's true for all of us, right? And so you can look right back at your parents, not in like a disrespectful way, but you'll be like, hey, mom, dad, like there's some people in your life that, that probably are not a good influence on you. As we put our trust in Jesus, we're learning to walk in obedience to him as we are being conformed to the image of this world, to the image of Jesus. 
There are parts of our lives that, that we are being rescued from and redeemed from. And there are people that, man, you know what? God has rescued me from this. And if I go into these places, this, these, these people, this environment is not causing me to chase after Jesus. These people are not encouraging me to grow in my faith and walk in obedience to Jesus. They're doing just the opposite. That the more time I spend with these people, man, it's, it's, a, it's a discouragement to me. Maybe these people are a bad influence. I mean, recognizing that, right? That we, we still love people. We still, our, our goal as followers of Jesus is that, that we want all men to know the hope of the gospel. We want all people to understand the truth of what Jesus has done. But we, we, at the same time, we need to be, know that, that we are affected by the environments that we're in, the people we're in. How do we find people who are going to walk alongside of us and encourage us to chase after Jesus? And so are there people that Christians shouldn't spend time with? Probably. And the Holy Spirit will help you make those decisions and, and know where to set up those boundaries. So now coming back to work. I think the third question, the third burning question that comes up as we look at this is this. Are there jobs that Christians shouldn't have? If you're a follower of Jesus, are there certain occupations that are just off limits? And this is an interesting question. In fact, uh, about a month ago, Pastor Matt, during one of his chat with Matt's on Facebook, talked about this topic. So if you're interested, you can go back. I would, I'd encourage you to go watch it. Because this, this question is something that the church has wrestled with for a long time. And lots of different conversations have come up. And people have tried to, again, draw the line of here are the things that are they're off limits. And I think there's a handful that are, that are pretty cut and dry. Right? But I think, again, in order to answer this question correctly, we, we come back to this verse. It's kind of been the underlining verse for this whole series on work. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our work, our jobs are supposed to be things that we can do to the best of our ability to glorify God. And so if we're not able to do that, then it's probably a job that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, shouldn't have. So again, if we look at those like cut and dry things, right, here's, here's a couple of simple ones. If your job, like if your boss is like, okay, I've got a new assignment for you this week, I need you to go kill that guy. Right? If you're a hitman, probably not a job you should have. Right? In fact, if your boss asks you to do this week, I recommend you quit. <laughs> Maybe report it. I don't know the right thing you should do, but don't do it. Okay? Sounds pretty good, right? Because can you glorify God by doing something that God tells us not to do? Nope. So that, that job's off limits. All right? In the same line, right? I don't know if, like, for those of you who are graduating high school this year, like, when, I don't know if your guidance counselor, like, offered, like, professional bank robber or something. Like, again, that's a job off limits. Like, if thief, because, again, it's going right against the Ten Commandments, so that one's off, off limits. In the same breath, you could, you could cross off a couple more, you know, prostitutions off limits, right? Because there's things that God has told us not to do, and so doing them, you can't glorify God in that, okay? That's the easy part, Right? After that, then there's this whole category of ones that people like to debate about and wrestle with. Because right? it, it, then it gets a little bit fuzzy. Right? Like a soldier or a police officer. Right? In those lines of work, 
you may end up in this position where, where you have to shoot someone and potentially kill them. It gets sticky, right? It gets confused. Like, how do you, how do you reckon those things together? Right? And, and, and for centuries, the church has, has done that. Also, like currently, a lot of, there's, there's some Christians who are saying, you cannot be, as a follower of Jesus, you cannot be a professional athlete. Because the way our world works and professional athletes, man, it's all about themselves and fame and glory. And man, that doesn't line up with God's word. But I think in all of those categories, those confusing categories, there's some really good examples of people who have followed Jesus and done those things and glorified God in them. But they become these things that we like to wrestle with. And again, in the chat with Matt, you can listen to Matt and he talks about them a little more. Here's, here's what I want you to get at though. We could argue about all those things, but it boils down to this. Whatever your job is, can you do it to the best of your ability to glorify God? Because as much as you want to argue about a policeman or a professional athlete, man, if you're an accountant and your, your boss is encouraging you to, to fudge numbers, then you can't glorify God in that. If you're a builder and, and you're being encouraged to cut corners to save money, like, are you doing your best to glorify God? It's more than just, is this profession right or, or wrong? It comes down again to learning to listen to the Holy Spirit who lives in us because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. If I'm being asked to break God's law in the smallest way, is it a place that I can glorify God? So it's not that here's the five jobs a Christian shouldn't do. It really comes down to, as a follower of Jesus, can I work here? And can I glorify God in my work? You see, in all of this, and, and I would encourage you to keep wrestling with those burning questions. Continue to look at God's Word. How do we understand this? How do we apply this? But it all comes down to this, this idea of sacred and secular. It's not about spaces. Spaces are neutral. But if you belong to God, then your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and He lives in you. And you have the opportunity in whatever place you enter, whatever place you set foot to make that place holy and to redeem it and to have an impact for the glory of God in that space. So the question isn't, how can I act in sacred places, but how can I, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, make an impact in the world I live in, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my sphere of influence? How am I impacting people for the glory of God? That's what we get to be as a church. Because when we walk into a space, we make it sacred. So we're in a sacred space right now. But not because there's anything special about this building. It's because we're here as the church. The people of God together to worship. But now we get to go. And the exciting part about being a follower of Jesus is that we don't have to wait till next Sunday when we get to come back to this sacred space. We get to go out into all of our workplaces, into our homes, and we get to bring the Holy Spirit into those places and trust Him to work through us to redeem His creation to Himself, to point people to the gospel, to the hope of what Jesus has done for us so that more and more people can connect with God and understand how He loves us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have rescued us. 
Jesus, we thank you that you have redeemed us and, and you have not just left us here until someday we get to go to heaven, but you dwell with us. You have made your home in us and we are your temple. God, help us to understand that truth. Help us to understand that, that everywhere we go can become a sacred place because you are there. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And God, you choose to work in and through us to redeem people to yourself. God, help us to understand that and live that out this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.